Welcome to episode 50 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. It is my pleasure to introduce Arlene Stradler-Brown, Ph.D., CCCSLP. Dr. Stradler-Brown provides consultation and technical assistance to programs working with children who are deaf and hard of hearing in the United States and internationally. She has graduate degrees in speech-language pathology, education of the deaf and hard of hearing, and a doctoral degree in special education. Her recent research focuses on telepractice and the use of coaching strategies in the delivery of family-centered early intervention. Having worked many years in program administration and policy development, Dr. Stradler-Brown brings this skill set to her role as director of the Colorado Early Hearing Detection and Intervention Program, or the Colorado EDI Program, as some may refer to it. Common things guiding her work are inclusiveness, collaboration, evidence-based practice, and a commitment to infants and toddlers who are deaf and hard of hearing and their families. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Stedler Brown to the podcast. Well, Arlene, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. And I want to start at the beginning. So how did you get interested in this wonderful world of, of deafness as a as sort of a general term? Well, it was um it was actually a a, a, a youth in my youth. Back in Philadelphia, I went on a uh, a class trip to the Pennsylvania School for the Deaf, which is in Philadelphia, where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was pretty fascinated. I I was a kid, so I'm not sure Mm -hmm. I can tell you how why I was fascinated, but it uh, Mm -hmm. resonated with me, and I um, pursued the field uh, in university training and. I did pause before that, actually. I um, spent a year uh, volunteering in some different centers in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. uh, during undergrad years. And, um, oh, I was at St. Christopher's Hospital and looking at their toddler group for children who were deaf and hard of hearing uh, I was in a speech pathology clinic in that hospital, looking at lots of different populations. Uh, I was just a volunteer, and they t- mm-hmm. people there took me under their wing and sent me to an ASHA conference. And I went, "Yeah, I like wow. it. Um, where where shall I shall I focus?" And as I was doing all this volunteer work, I was. Ex- experiencing different populations age-wise and kept thinking younger, go younger, go younger, be habilitative as opposed Mm -hmm. to rehabilitative. 
And that those that word being habilitative took me into birth to three mm-hmm. and family centered early intervention and um, speech pathology. Um, I wasn't sure about speech pathology or audiology, but I knew that that right. was where I would focus and uh, came to University of Denver. They had a program in 1972 called Project Parent Child, which was, an, as I understand now, an OSEP-funded grant wow. to um, do home-based early intervention with birth to three-year-olds who were deaf and hard of hearing in rural Colorado. Wow. And never looked back. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of people, of course, identify you with Colorado and and things that have gone on there over the years. Um, so you went to Colorado and kind of stayed there, or did you? So you just end up staying. Huh? I so, went to Colorado and <laughs> never looked back on that score either. <laughs> never went back to Pennsylvania. <laughs> so, um, and and of course, Colorado is a great place to be. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, so. That uh, birth to three program there in Colorado way back then, how how was that structured in terms of it was early intervention going into the homes, a lot of the parent training and parent coaching, as we know today? Uh, almost everything you just said is correct. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. give you some history so we can sure. see how where we've gone over time. Sure. This um, federal grant to the University of Denver uh, was around the same time as the Sky High grant mm-hmm. uh, funding at Utah State. And right. I think the grant started in 1969. So there was the speech and audiology building and the uh, home-based idea was to buy a trailer with grant funds, a mobile trailer home, mm-hmm. put it in the parking lot of the building, And because the grant was specifically for families in rural areas, they brought the families in from rural areas. They could live in the trailer, was fully equipped, very functional. And we graduate students under supervision worked with the families. Um, Was it family-centered? Yes. There was a checklist, Boone, Mm -hmm. Dan Boone, and Mm -hmm. Prescott created a checklist so that as students, we would videotape our session and look at how dominant were we? How many turns did the parent take? How many turns did the child take? Mm-hmm. Um, quite trend-setting, right? Uh, the grant sure. started in 69. I was there in 72. Um, but it was really trying to teach us to look at a home environment, utilize what's in it, Help the parents during daily routines to uh, engage with their child in natural ways using these strategies that we would teach them because they were helpful for communication. That's incredible. That that was sort of, well, actually what should have occurred, but definitely uh, ahead of its time in terms of uh, what we still preach that needs to be done today. Unfortunately, we still have to preach that. <laughs> so the grant ended, mm-hmm. and uh, Hal Weber at the Colorado Department of Health at the time, it was called, mm-hmm. said he was an audiologist, and he said, 
this is too good to end. Bring it over to the health department. So uh, Project Parent-Child came to Mm -hmm. the health department. Um, I was one of the, I had now graduated. I was one of the interventionists. They were now flying us to rural areas because the grant was done. So the mobile home was gone. Uh, But they would let us drive or fly to, um, it's very exciting, to these homes in rural areas and stay there for a couple of days and do in relatively intensive therapy with families. Uh, but however, the audiologists at the health department said this should be statewide. We are the Colorado, Colorado Department of Health mm-hmm. uh, and made it a home-based program. This is before Part H um, sure. and certainly before Part C. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are about a dozen early interventionists. And we named the program CHIP, the Colorado Home Intervention Program. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was fortunate enough to become the uh, co-director and then eventually the director of the program. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> that's what happened with that grant. So I think the feds like that kind of thing. They like it when a grant can be sustained. Oh yeah. It's always, they're always asking, how can you, you know, sustain this project after the funding ends, you know, and you guys are able to do that. Yep. And, and so chip still is happening today, right? Well, it, it looks different now. Um, the health department in 2000. Yeah. Uh, they saw that this program was growing. We now had universal mm-hmm. newborn hearing screening. Right. And um, so our numbers tripled like they did in many places. And uh, then we were sensitive to children with unilateral hearing loss. So that almost doubled the population. And the health department said, you know, we don't bill Medicaid and we don't do direct service. And we were part of the uh, MCH block grant and they're much more of a systems grant. So the program Mm -hmm. uh, left there. And uh, spent some time at the school for the deaf. And then it was really kind of assumed by Part C. So um, because they're the funders. Right. And uh, so there are certainly principles and characteristics of the program that prevail. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of it's through Part C, some of it's through the school for the deaf, some of it's through Colorado Eddy. Um, it's more of a multi-agency um, effort now. As you know, most states are, and right. fortunately or unfortunately, because with all these different players, we know that that's when sometimes the kids fall through the cracks and don't get to the right services because of the different entities that may be providing the services. So it would, you know, be wonderful if it was all under one one umbrella that made sure that the families were going through the system uh, appropriately. And getting all the services they need. Enter, if I may, the mm-hmm. um, nationally funded EDI uh, mm-hmm. program. Uh, every state and territory gets some money from the federal government to uh, support the EDI initiative. So now right. we're talking screening, diagnostics, and intervention. And um, that is a multi agency effort. We're actually mm-hmm. in a strategic planning process to look at defining which agency does what. And uh, the co-PIs, co-principal investigators of our EDI grant here in Colorado are um, the manager for Part C for the state, Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and the director of the Colorado Commission for the Deaf, Hard of Hearing, and Deaf Blind. So in a way, um, we have some really good partners, plus mm-hmm. the Department of Public Health and Environment. Right. Um, it, it's grown, but uh, sure. it is now uh, at the School for the Deaf is still involved. And among other things, our grant speaks to all the um, opportunities that children have uh, for early intervention. So the Listen Foundation is in Colorado and they fund mm-hmm. listening and spoken language therapy, part C, mm-hmm. fund some of those interventionists. Uh, it, we we offer all, still offer in the state, all communication approaches, but are trying to get all those entities, A.G. Bell, Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, School for the Deaf, of course, at the same table. We're not trying. We've actually succeeded in doing that in the last three or four years. So um, it's a different model than being in Mm -hmm. one agency for sure, but it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. The funding is sustainable, Um, but the model is a little bit different Mm -hmm. than in, in the old days. (laughs) So what, what do you think is going to be the strength of, the strengths of this model as we go forward? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think interagency collaboration is key. I think it's important. You know, if when people aren't at the table together, they kind of debate or mm-hmm. argue um, and don't necessarily develop trust and respect in one another. So we put a lot of effort into uh, collegiality, Mm-hmm. meetings, task forces, they're all virtual. Uh, people from all around the state can attend, urban, rural. We have interpreters, Spanish, American Sign Language. We um, try to be very inclusive so that people are informed and can trust that we're supporting everybody and all choices. Mm-hmm. Um, another value is funding. Uh, it right. was difficult for one entity to fund the program. That's why health asked us to leave uh, because mm-hmm. it was too much money in direct service. And by having part C on board, they do the lion's share of the funding, but there are other funders who raise money, nonprofits, they're private uh, early interventionists mm-hmm. and private practice. Um, they're at the table at our task force meetings and our subcommittee. So it's it's sustaining an interagency effort takes different kind of effort, but I think holds more assurance for longevity. Right, right. I can see where, like you're saying, in in sort of having it all under one agency, if the funding goes away, then it's gone. Everything's gone. And so this is a way to to keep it all, you know, all the aspects maybe going forward so not one agency is having to sort of pay the bill uh, for all those services one of the challenges that we have here in ohio um it's it's one that uh we have of course part c services that are being provided to these families uh it's usually about one hour per month of uh consultative uh for the most part um and uh what we also, the biggest frustration, I, that's frustrating in itself, but the biggest frustration that I have 
is that the system doesn't refer these families out to other community resources. They serve the family that one hour per month, but they're not really doing any care coordination or service coordination with other professionals in the community. So I never get referrals from the early intervention system. Um, and so that's, you know, it's it's a frustrating aspect. And we had the Eddie conference here, you know, this year in Cincinnati. And I went down for that. And in our state meeting, you know, I I thought maybe, well, maybe it's just my little areas, you know, doing that. No, this whole room full of people were basically very, very frustrated that the system was sort of a closed system. And these families were not being told or or connected to other services that could be very beneficial to them. And then after age three, these school districts are like, why are these kids not doing so well? Um, you know, and it's 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 kind of frustrating. Um, so I feel like in, in many ways in in the state, it's kind of taken a step back. We used to have what was called these um, the RIP programs, um, and, and those were regional infant programs for kids with with hearing loss, and uh, those went away, of course, and uh, and sort of a, everything was just put under Part C, and this is sort of where we are now, and so it's very frustrating. Uh, I'm going to speak a little to Colorado sure. because we have dodged that challenge. Mm -hmm. It's not just in Ohio. And so I'll mention how that came to be. Mm -hmm. So now that you have the context of my history with the program, sure. when we only had 12 early interventionists and 50 kids, mm -hmm. um, I met every family when they enrolled in the program. Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, the program grew and uh, there were a lot more kids. And we thought, well, this contact is really good. This, the, a person who knows birth to three, who knows communication and language, who knows the field of uh, hearing loss or hearing differences. This seems to be a really important service for families, mm -hmm. most of whom are not familiar with anyone who has a hearing loss. So um, we created a program called the Colorado Hearing Resource Coordinators. There were 10 of them at the time. And uh, each one had a geographic area of the state. So Denver had, Denver County had one person for mm -hmm. Denver County, whereas on the Western Slope in the mountainous regions, uh, they may have 12 counties, small population, big distances. But um, we, we call these Colorado Hearing Resource Coordinators, COHEAR Coordinators for short. Mm -hmm. They exist to this day, which is kind of the replacement for your RIP program, mm -hmm. I right. guess I would say. Um, interestingly, they're not funded by Part C. They're funded by the School for the Deaf. Um, but the audiologists in the state who identify children as deaf or hard of hearing, they call 
the COHERE coordinator for their region. They mm-hmm. have a up-to-date list. It's They access it with a QR code now because some assignments change over time. Mm-hmm. But they know as soon as they've identified a child and have parent permission, they will call the COHERE coordinator. The COHERE coordinator sees the family. They, they call the family and set up an appointment and say, I'd like to refer you to all your different mm-hmm. options. Let's talk about them. And whether it's different communication approaches or different agencies, Part C being one of those agencies, and then families make an informed decision with someone who knows hearing differences, knows early childhood, and knows the system. You know, Todd, it's been a difficult system to replicate. I was so proud about it that when Eddie meetings were first happening back in the 90s and early aughts, um, I gave lots of presentations about this, and my people who took over where I left off did the same. For some reason, it seems to be a difficult model to replicate. I- I'm not sure why. Uh, Missouri has. They call them Mohir coordinators. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found that out at the Eddie meeting in Cincinnati. Um, yeah. uh, but it's not prevalent among mm-hmm. the state. Yeah. I- and when I first came to Ohio, we had, I think we had like a year of the RIP programs still in place, and then they kind of faded away. Um, so it was, you know, ap- it basically worked very similarly. You, you know, you would send them to the your regional RIP program, and then services would be uh, defined and and connected to those providers. Um, it's, you know, it, I I don't know. I, this is, I don't want to go too far on all this because it's just frustrating. But um, I think one of the things that um, that has sort of, I've heard, is that one of the reasons the uh, Part C program here will not refer out uh, to other providers is that they're afraid they're have to, they'll have to pay for those services. Even when that is absolutely not the case. <laughs> they still won't refer out. So I think, you know, like many things, it's all it all comes down to comes down to money and where the money is flowing and leadership and and having a, you know, a broader perspective on how these services could be provided. Um and we're kind of you know, all states for the most part are, you know, experiencing these issues and have cut services and moved you know, the services to different agencies within the state government and all those things. And it, you know, when all that starts to happen, things start to fade away and get reorganized and it's not always better. And I think now we're, we're certainly not better than we used to be. We we're, we've kind of taken some steps backwards. You know, you make me think about um, some of the challenges that we have. And one is that in terms of part C, we're a very low incidence mm-hmm. condition. And sometimes I really appreciate that our Part C manager was willing to be the co-principal investigator on our grant because we're talking hundreds of kids and mm-hmm. she's responsible for thousands of kids right? Uh, with all types of disabilities and disorders and differences. Um, and yet enter in the national legislation Mm -hmm. 
Eddie, some at HRSA through Health and Human Services, some at the CDC, um, and some given to every state and territory. And we kind of have a, a forum or a force or money, whatever it takes, <laughs> to impact change. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want to underestimate the value of the people who are in the state who have perpetuated these activities, but um, we can, and we have our state legislation too, requiring screening. Right. right. So um, in the Part C world, this is a low incidence, but mm-hmm. among our low incidence colleagues and parents and deaf and hard of hearing adults, we have a lot of initiatives to help um, with name recognition and focus mm-hmm. on this population. And as to your point, it takes the right people at the right time who have the energy to infiltrate a system. Easier said than done, but um, I think that eddy, federal eddy money has certainly helped. Right, right. And, you know, it it's, goes back, you know, it's, there's just not enough hours in the day to try to get to everything and try to do these things. but. Um, I know there are some people in the state that are working to try to make things better. And, and I do appreciate the work that part C does do. I understand the number of children that they are having to, to deal with and families and, and it is a low incidence population, but it, uh, you know, for us who've been in this area of the field for so long, you see, you know, these kids where, you know, you could have a tremendous impact to help the family and help the child. and they're just not getting the the right types of services or or the scope of services just isn't there that they really need to be successful in so that that's what really frustrates me so yeah oh, go ahead i mentioned one other thing mm-hmm. something that we started um with the program in the 80s was uh I wasn't the director of the program at that point. I was just a consultant with the health department. And for a set of circumstances that were basically um, fiscal management and fiscal responsibility, the health department that was paying for these interventionists said, uh, we need to know that we're doing a good thing. And I was hired to figure out how to document that. So I created an assessment tool. Mm -hmm. It was called the Family Assessment. It's an acronym. Family Assessment of Multidisciplinary Interactional Learning for the Young Child. Um, Yes. So family, all caps. Mm -hmm. And um, what we said is, well, we should evaluate kids periodically. Like this will be a progress monitoring tool. Mm -hmm. And the legislature liked it. They said, okay. You're using state money for this program and you're showing growth in the kids. Okay. So we dodged Mm -hmm. that bullet. But enter into the, I think it's fair to say by the 90s, people were looking at, especially in the field of speech language pathology, evidence-based programming Mm -hmm. and um, collecting data and our assessment tools were getting better. Uh, long story short, uh, the family assessment that's still used in Colorado, it's, it's been adapted as anything built in the 80s ought to be. Um, sure. 
it became the National Early Childhood Assessment Program that Christy Yoshinaga Itano mm-hmm. and Alice Setti were looking at, which is a very abbreviated uh, portion of the family assessment. Family mm-hmm. assessment has eight or 10 protocols. Right. NECAP had two, three, four, maybe. But the idea was kids can, their, their progress can be monitored. And right. the data can inform intervention. And that was appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and CDC, funding for NECAP uh, is no longer there, but funding for the Odyssey Project is now there at mm-hmm. the CDC and still here at CU Boulder. And because some of the federal money for EDI is now looking at child outcomes, and this is new, like new in 2023, um, a lot of programs and some states are participating in the Odyssey Project, right? which is another way to evaluate kids. And why am I making a point about this? It's when you have, um, sorry about that, when you have uh, outcome data or progress monitoring data, Mm -hmm. sometimes that's a really good way to make a program known. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not just a service. It's something mm-hmm. that's changing children's lives. Uh, right. We can see how kids enter preschool, to your point. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how's their communication language development looking at three years of age when early intervention ends? Uh, we used to assess kids up to kindergarten. We don't have the funding for that right now, but people in the state are, are looking at ways to regain that funding. Sure. Uh, so it's just another... Oh, another tool in my toolbox, I suppose, is to mm-hmm. encourage that um, because to participate in the Odyssey Project is free, no charge to the state. Um, let's, if we were to participate, what do we get out of it? And what can mm-hmm. our stakeholders in our state um, learn about our efforts and the success of them? I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I, it makes me wonder if I, I haven't heard that Ohio is participating in the Odyssey Project, um, but I, I wonder what kind of outcome measures they're collecting now. I've never heard of any being collected, but maybe they are. Um, it would be interesting to see what those those numbers say uh, yeah. about the current system. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it gives me uh, another way to investigate or maybe suggest ways to to move forward. Um, so let's let's shift gears a little bit, because because now I'm, I'm excited to talk about something you and I are both very interested in, and that's telehealth and telepractice in terms of getting services to families. Right. Um, so when did that spark happen for you when you first started thinking about um the use you mentioned flying in an airplane to go serve families way back in the day. Uh, and then suddenly you can think about telehealth uh, as being a, a way to serve families. There was a point in time when I was the director of the Colorado Home Intervention Program. We now have Eddie, we have universal newborn hearing screening. Colorado passed their first legislation in 1997. We had these incredible numbers of kids 
and we didn't feel like we had the um, staff to uh, serve all the kids equitably. So um, computers were a thing. Skype was available. Uh, so there was virtual meeting opportunity. And I uh, started thinking, well, what if? Really, mm -hmm. what if? What if we had someone in a more populated area, Denver Metro, and they could not fly because no one's paying for that <laughs> anymore, but um, uh, work with someone remotely. So uh, then I had to find a funder. <laughs> because, <laughs> right. uh, I don't know what people thought, but no one was jumping to uh, fund this. And um, I was a member of a rotary club in Boulder. Mm -hmm. And uh, my colleague, Gary Kahn, mm -hmm. is a uh, family physician, right? Uh, was in Rotary. And he was all about telehealth for medicine because mm -hmm. medicine really was uh, committed to it before uh, rehab, the allied health profession, before allied health professions seemed to get involved. They mm -hmm. called it telemedicine. Right. So um, he said, Hey, you're doing it, or you want to do it. I'm doing it a little. Mm -hmm. Let's do something about it. So, we wrote a grant. Uh, NIH, National Institutes of Health, supports through the hospital system little $10,000 grants to explore a topic through a partnership. Mm -hmm. So, um, Gary and I got a few agencies together and explored the feasibility. We had mm -hmm. a couple of listening and spoken language therapists in Colorado who were doing telehealth. Mm -hmm. Joanna Stith mm -hmm. comes to mind. Um, Nancy Guerrero comes to mind. Oh, I'm sorry for those that I can't remember right off the top of my head. And uh, so we were interviewing them and meeting and we had some money to do some trial therapy and um, through the grant so that we could look at some mm -hmm. post data. Well, the whole point of these little $10,000 grants is to prepare your partnership to apply for a bigger grant. So enter some other colleagues, Jim Grigsby, who was involved in telemedicine, uh, Anu Sharma, who mm -hmm. is involved in not telemedicine, but her cortical potentials for looking at uh, measuring hearing loss mm -hmm. in the brain. And they liked the idea. And uh, we wrote a grant to NIH and we were funded to study telehealth. So now we're cooking. <laughs> now we can, uh, we actually compared two groups, uh, an in-person group and a telehealth group. Uh, but to your question, it was born out of need. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. We In Colorado, we don't hire uh, employees as early interventionists. We contract with providers, whether they're OTs, PTs, SLPs, teachers of the deaf. Uh, that's pretty much the model statewide with a few exceptions. So, um, you know, that's not real attractive to everybody who would rather have a job with benefits. Sure. That's still the case today, although mm -hmm. 
be a nice thing to change someday, but um, that's in the queue down the road. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had a sufficient number of early interventionists. We call them parent facilitators in this state to mm -hmm. focus on working with parent who were doing family centered early intervention. They could, we had our LISLs people. We had others who were not LISL certified and using uh, sign language or combination mm -hmm. of sign speech and listening. Uh, we could use interventionists out of state, uh, especially if they were teachers of the deaf, because we didn't have issues with licensure. Um, right. And uh, we had some momentum. Um, I spoke with our Part C manager at the time. It was not the current one. And she went, this is around 2010, she said, mm -hmm. or 2011. She said, oh, that wasn't that early. Wait a minute. Well, anyway, it was a while ago. Sure. <laughs> what do you think? What, what, we ended in 2019. 20, so, okay, we're in the 20 teens. And I said, hey, um, you probably ought to know. You probably ought mm -hmm. to know that we're doing some telehealth with your kids, you're paying for the intervention, but mm -hmm. we, we want to do it through telehealth. We can find other funding if need be. And she was all ears. She said, telehealth, telemedicine, teletherapy, uh, tell me more. So yes. this is a state level part C person mm -hmm. who uh, she dotted her I's and crossed her T's. And she went with the term telehealth because she found out that she could get more insurance companies and Medicaid to reimburse mm. the intervention if she called it telehealth instead of teletherapy or telehintervention. Right. So we're talking a systems person who knows how to play the game. Mm -hmm. All that to say, Part C said, we're on board for OTs, PTs, SLPs, developmental specialists, psychologists, social workers, all kids, any disability, we're on board. And they did, created a training, and uh, we thought we're we're into some sustainable activities here. Sure, but we had very few takers beyond mm. our grant. It was interesting. All of Part C. And there's some data out there, a couple of publications that uh, mm -hmm. myself with colleagues or colleagues in Colorado have published that showed it wasn't getting a lot of uptake. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we were studying why. Mm -hmm. And then COVID happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and the uh, world changes. And telehealth was great. Uh, <laughs> and we were many, many steps ahead because Part C had developed the training. Mm -hmm developed the billing codes, you got paid extra by Medicaid and some insurance companies because it was telehealth, pay for equipment or whatever. Uh, as we all know, the world changed very quickly around mm -hmm. virtual everything. But um, that was the shot in the arm. Part C has maintained their interest, of course. Uh, right. Many people have gone back to in-person. Not mm -hmm. everybody. The right. cohort coordinators I was talking about, they're more mm -hmm. service coordination. Uh, at role, they still do a lot of telehealth. Sure. Interventionists still do a lot of telehealth. It 
it's financially wise. Mm-hmm. Um, we can go into all those things if you want, but it um, now my my work is going toward not reverting to everything being in person. Right. Uh, whereas people thought telehealth was a lifesaver. Mm-hmm. Some people are ready to throw it away and go back to in-person. Right. There's a role for in-person. Don't misunderstand anything I'm suggesting. It's just sure. that when you adopt something in crisis and the crisis is starting to fade, you sometimes you want to throw away the old jacket you wore every single day for three years mm-hmm. or the computer you were doing therapy on for three years. Right. Um, right. So I hope that people will continue to look at telepractice, telehealth as an opportunity and an option. Right. So that's that's the long and short of getting it started. Uh, there were a few accidents in there, the right people, the right place, the right time. Sure, sure. Well, it's, it, you know, that going back to in-person kind of mindset of, oh, that's something we did just during the crisis. We don't need to do it again or do it anymore. That's something that I'm a little fearful for in terms of uh, of our training programs, our graduate training programs, because, um, of course, during COVID, all of our graduate training programs had to figure out how they're going to train their students who needed hours you know, before they graduated. And a lot of that was through simulation and through telepractice. And now that we're kind of, even though COVID is still out there, we've kind of gotten through that. I'm getting that kind of feedback from faculty across the countries. Oh, we did that, you know, telepractice, you know, yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, we'll do a little of that, but we're going to go back to the way we used to do it. Um, And I think that's the wrong way to think about it, you know, in terms of just training in the next generation of practitioners. Um, I think we need to be integrating this as, as, as the future. Cause I, I firmly believe that we'll be doing more telehealth, in the future, uh, and less in person. Although, like you say, there is a a, a need and a a, a a reason to do in person therapy or in person services, and that need will always be there. But how to train our our students to do hybrid models? You know, and that's you know that's sort of where I see a lot of the families I work with have kind of followed into. They do like to come in every now and again, but they don't want to come every week. You know. They want to do it through telepractice. So I think uh, that mindset is is um, still uh, still out there. But uh, I, I tell a lot of the families that, you know, uh, there's many of us out there in the field that were doing this before it was cool to do it. <laughs> and so, and now, uh, yeah. Now I'm looking to you and what you have done at your university. Because you've been comfortable with telehealth from the get-go. Um, and you have somehow infused that into your training program. And I don't know of a lot of programs that do- have done that. I know here in Colorado, I don't think our training programs have. Um, they were more what you were suggesting. It's COVID. We've got to do it. It's an alternative. But they were missing mm-hmm. the training. And I right. think... That's why people felt like it was a lifeline to continuing to train students and give them simulations and some virtual therapy um, hours. Mm-hmm. But the faculty who were 
creating the opportunities for the graduate students or undergraduate students weren't trained themselves. And so when the crisis ended and you can go back to your in-house clinic and practical Mm -hmm. experiences, externships and whatnot, like you said, you kind of revert back. And if people don't have the training, which is what you have so prescriptively designed before COVID, now people can go out in the community and know in their jobs. It's a skill. It it probably is a good selling point at a job interview that I've been trained Mm -hmm. to do this. It's different. It's not just Mm -hmm. in-person therapy online. It, there are different considerations that your graduate students learn with supervision, with I'm sure a whole lot of uh, uh, published research and to guides uh, to do this. So how do we grow that? Um, well, a couple of things that come to mind, and thank you for, for that. Um, there are, you know, there, there's a couple of other, you know, a handful of other, I would say, uh, training programs that are keeping, you know, telepractice as a, as a focus um, and, and trying to develop, you know, courses around telepractice and, and more practical experiences. Um, you know, a couple of things that, that, that I think hinder this is when you think about speech language pathology, especially if it's not required in, in terms of accreditation or in terms of what the students are required to, to get prior to graduation, it's hard to fit it in because a two-year master's program in speech is just so full of, you know, that whole lifespan of trying to train students to work with every disorder across the lifespan in those two years. And then you're trying to say, okay, well, we need a full course on telepractice service delivery and, or, you know, you're, you know, we need to find more, you know, practicum uh, experiences and get, get our students to rotate through those, you know, those kinds of things. And then people just start crossing their, you know, their eyes start to cross, like, how are we going to do that? You know, it's just, it's just, you know, we don't, we have, no space in the curriculum to do that. So that's one of the issues. And then I think, you know, it's kind of like hearing loss uh, being an, an area of focus uh, for, for me and being on a faculty that in, in other and um, other training programs, you may not have someone that has a hearing loss focus, or you may not have someone, a faculty member who can sort of be that that driving force to say, okay, we really need to train our students to do this or to do, you know, training grants and get those funded and provide funding for students and those kinds of things. And so that's a, that's another issue is you need that faculty um, sort of um, person who's going to, to really push the idea. And, and then the other thing too, I think um, I want to change uh, how we think about technology in our training programs. Because when we think about speech language pathology and we think about technology, we usually think about AAC, you know, uh, alternative and augmentative communication and, and individuals that need some type of communication device, which is a very important area that we must train our students to, to work with those, those patients. 
but we don't think about beyond that. So, for example, how can we use telepractice? How can we use virtual uh, reality or augmentative reality? Um, how can we use 3D printing? How is that going to affect practice? So all these areas of things that are happening out there, it's all of those things are going to shape how we provide services. And I, I'm fearful that we're not really talking about those kinds of things. And we think about tech and service delivery. It's only that AAC um, focus that we have. And I think we need to have a, a broader idea and understanding of how technology will continue to shape how we deliver the services that we're trying to, to deliver, um, even beyond telepractice and how some of these other texts may be combined with telepractice as we go forward. Um, and I don't see many training programs thinking in those terms. And that's, that's something I'm trying to push our faculty sort of to think about even more. Asha used to have a person who was the telehealth person, telepractice person, and she yes. retired. And I don't know, I, I haven't, I know they still have a special interest group for telepractice, but I don't know if there's a dedicated uh, lead at Asha because if Asha were to support telepractice and training for telepractice, then it gets integrated into every speech language training program. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, just getting over a cold and, and other stuff. So I apologize. Um, they do, they, they had, um, someone you're right. Her last name was Brown. I think. Joy Brown. Yes, I believe. Yes. Um, Brown? Something like that. And she, she retired. And then I think someone inherited that, but I think it, it wasn't. Janet Brown. Uh, yeah. It's not as, doesn't seem to be as, as prominent as, as she was. Um, and what Asha has said, you know, more recently is that students can count so many pra uh, telepractice hours, uh, you know, towards their required hours before they graduate. And then, you know, they can uh, count so many telepractice hours during their CFY experience and all that. They've defined all those things now. Um, but they have not made it a requirement in terms of you must be trained in this area. They're saying you can count them if your program offers them or you had that you have that experience. But it's kind of like um it's kind of like hearing loss in children. Um way back in the day when I was in grad school, we had to get 20 oral habilitation hours before we graduated. Clock hours. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but today students have to get child speech and child language hours, right? And so they can go get child speech hours working in the schools or getting a practicum in a, in a public school setting, and they may not ever see a child with hearing loss. All those hours in child speech and child language could be with typical hearing kids that have those needs. Um, and so, again, we're with the changes that have happened and, and curricula and, and requirements of students, we've kind of lost some of that, you know, focus that they have to get these hours in with this population before they graduate, at least some exposure. And so unless the program has something going on with hearing loss, those kids may not, uh, those grad students may not get any experience for those kids. 
So Although just, if you learn to do deliver therapy through telepractice mm -hmm. with any population, adults, sure. children, you could generalize that to. Uh, sure. You know, it's, or, or if you're supervising deaf, hard of hearing, they get those clock hours, they count towards speech or language, um, but they can transfer their skills that they've practiced with telepractice to any population kind of works sure. if if that's a yeah if they're someone is is pushing them have that available to all the grad students i think right now it's more random you know yeah. because of how it's uh we're trying to you know sort of swing back the pendulum's trying to swing back to being more in person so a lot of you know practicum placements aren't doing as much telepractice anymore and so you know, this, the student who ends up going to this practicum placement may get lots of telepractice experience and the student in the next semester may not because they've moved on, you know, they're switched back or something. And so it's more of a, a random kind of thing um, for many of the training programs. And Maybe my next job will be with ASHA. You and I can work with ASHA to try to get telehealth more established. I would love to work on that with you. That would be an honor and a pleasure to work on that with you. So what advice would you give talking of speaking about these these young graduate students and, and new graduates and new professionals? What advice would you give them uh, as as many of them are starting their careers if they wanted to work with hearing loss or early intervention or even telepractice and telehealth? What advice would you give them? Well, first, I have, we have to get give advice to the programs training them so that they know there are children who are deaf and hard of hearing, and uh, there's telehealth, and there's mm -hmm. family-centered early intervention. I think mm -hmm. family-centered early intervention is pretty well established um, nationally now in uh, mm -hmm. speech math training programs. Uh, working with deaf, hard of hearing of any age maybe less established speech language pathology and audiology haven't quite sorted that out yet. Sure. Um, especially for adults. Um, what advice would I give? When I was working at university of Colorado and I was teaching a little bit and adjunct and I was doing clinical supervision. So I was the person mm -hmm. who was, kind of making issues around deaf, hard of hearing obvious. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, of course the birth to three stuff too, because I, I love it. So um, one thing I would tell my students is if this is of interest, pursue it. It might not be obvious. There might not be, a dedicated supervisor or a dedicated uh, professor of a class like there is with stuttering mm -hmm. or aphasia. Um, so if this is of interest, find someone who can help you. Um, when students who are interested in deaf, hard of hearing would sit, come to me because I was the identified person in the department, mm -hmm. Um, I use my contacts. I said, I'll, I'll help you when you need to do your practicum. Let's put you at a school where there's um, where they're deaf and hard of hearing kids, not just mm -hmm. the kids in the mainstream, but where they may have a center based program. 
let me connect you with some of the Lissell's therapists who are in private practice. See if they'll take you on as for a practicum. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I feel like when you know what you want to do, and this is what worked for me, I went out to find who could inform my passion. And I, I guess I would do the same. I have done the same for others and suggest that students, when you have an inkling, whether it's adult aphasia or child language or children or adults with who are deaf and hard of hearing, you may have to go and seek it out a little bit, mm-hmm. but find help to seek that out because among the faculty and clinical supervisors in training programs and providers in a community or in a state, we can move around so easily now. We, You just need someone to help you network, to help you right. connect. So I'd say identify your passion and then ask the right questions to find the person to help you to uh, live your passion and study your passion. Excellent advice. And, and I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I'm grow up, when I grow up. So I, I will, I will do exactly that. <laughs> well, Arlene, thank you for joining me on the podcast and best of luck with everything that you're continuing to do. Cause I know you're always busy and, uh, I'll have to get you to come back in a while and we'll we'll catch up again. It's been a pleasure, Todd. Thanks for the invitation. I want to thank Arlene for joining me on the podcast. And she's someone that I have long admired. And we've had the opportunity to work together on some projects. And she's just been wonderful. She's always been someone I've looked up to and, and learned from every time I talk to her, every time I read something that she's written. So Arlene, keep up the great work. And uh, and we'll have to find another project to tackle soon. And I apologize to my listeners. I'm having some uh, oral motor surgery I've just had uh, this past week. Still dealing with issues related to that. And that's why I may sound a little different. And I apologize. But we will get through it, right? So if you don't mind... Um, please, if you don't mind, uh, leave us a five-star review. That helps us to attract some new listeners and move up in the ranks and helps in a lot of different ways. And if you could just go on to your uh, streaming or any type of podcatcher that you're listening to this on, whether it's Spotify or or Apple Music or Apple Podcasts or even Google Play or Google Podcast, please leave us a five-star review and, and say a few words about why you like listening to these conversations. That would be very, very, very helpful. And until next time in two weeks, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. 